The following conversation is intended for mature audiences only. Those under the age of 18 or without a sense of humor, listener discretion is advised. There are all sorts of ways in which we love to do this. Open up the mic. You know what I'm saying? Hey! Jump and try it straight into it. Oh. Let me try that again. Welcome to the Mate Dates Podcast, the show where we make the dates with our mates. Brain, welcome to the show. We are yeah. currently in the midst of astronauts in space once more. Brayden, are you going to space anytime soon? Ooh. Only when a few thousand people have gone and it's deemed safe and they also have they're growing vegetation wherever it is. Right. So it's kind so, of like coronavirus, right? Like you want you want the other people to get the brunt of it, kind of wait a little bit in the background, and then once all the kinks have been worked out, you're going to then get out there. It's, it's that kind of like... Yeah, man. Approach. I mean, what if there's like some kind of space disease? Like I want... Oh. I mean, I applaud and admire those who can go out and retain, like actually... <laughs> Uh, suffer from this disease first and foremost and, yeah. and to really do that for science you know do that for science do that for advancement of medicine so that it makes the following people safer to travel so that's nice but where so but where would the if I'm traveling to space and uh, this SpaceX launch where did they actually go like do you know do you know this fact these, this information uh, not they're not, sure. I don't think it's, they're going anywhere they're just kind of demonstrating once more that they could go up into the atmosphere and uh, I think it's just because it's the first time in like a decade I think that the United States has actually had a launch and uh, yeah and watching the video of it is just is pretty cool like because it's I think it's different to in terms of today because you know when you had the moon uh, launch you know sure it was on TV everyone could watch it but you didn't have the technology that we have now so you couldn't see the whole kind of i mean you should watch this if you haven't because you got you get you do get to see the whole thing in high def like the camera tracking mm. the whole time and then we can cut to the astronauts inside it's very uh, interesting oh, footage yeah. and there's no real way you can say that it's fake whereas before uh many people found enough you know pixels in the wrong place in, in the footage <laughs> because it was so bad that you know they uh, just inevitably thought nah it's oh, yeah. nasa's having it was like a, what 160p and black yeah. and white and yeah like there's gonna be no yeah, you, you could kind of point a finger at saying maybe there's strings here that we can't exactly see because of the resolution and the quality. That's obviously what happened. We've never gone to the moon, and uh, that is just the way <laughs> it is. So deal with it. Science can't explain the moon, just like it can't explain consciousness. We'll be talking about that later yeah. in the show and talking about it's, the... Uh, it's crazy to think that there's theories about the moon landing, like, you know, we're 60 years on. Uh, 50, oh, 50 years. I'm, yeah. I, I know them. They're, they're in my family. So, yep, they're they're definitely oh, yeah. they're definitely around. Exactly. They still exist. Right, right. <laughs> the moon denies. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like <laughs> yeah. the fact that they actually exist that they're circulating in the world, and you know, it's like the flat earthers. And stuff. Yeah, it's like, yeah. 
They, live, right. they live among us. <laughs> you can believe what you what you want to believe. You know, whatever helps. Yeah, you whatever. Sleep. Whatever helps you get through your life and eventually meet the the end and where you think you're going. Sure, what you know, as long as you're not harming anyone. We're here to be your mates. We don't discriminate. We're here to take you along for a ride. Believe whatever you want to believe. We're not going to judge you. Safe space. <laughs> That's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll be talking about the uh, infamous, or uh, depending on your intuition, I suppose, uh, kind of very notorious Nagel's Bats, and we'll be talking about that, his famous essay. It's a very good essay, and it's going to be fun to talk about that. Uh, but for now, you know, what's been going on? The truth is, I, I think it's interesting because, you know, we just mentioned the SpaceX launch, and seeing that today was kind of a uh, relief, right, from the, the week of... You know, if we're just going to touch on the news here, it's just been a bit of a mess. And, you know, obviously we're in Australia. We don't, we're not, we are looking from the outside into a lot of chaos that's going on in the United States. And without getting into, you know, we don't, we don't have anything to say about like the intricacies of <laughs> all the all the craziness, right? All the racial stuff, all of that is, is just awful, really, mm. at the end of the day. And it's like, it's unfortunate that this is going on, but I don't know, what's your reaction to Jeez, yeah. I mean, look, it it's actually quite uplifting, especially with the space launch. What what's it? The Falcon Nine Punch, whatever. It sounds like such a Elon Musk kind of name for a spaceship. But you know, it's very relevant that um, we're 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 looking outside of this Earth because this Earth is just. I mean, twenty twenty has really done a number on it. Um, in any in every corner of the planet, and so to be able to fly out and look for answers outside. I mean, that's kind of what we're hoping. That that would that would definitely help our situation. Yeah, it's a weird on, um, like paradox, isn't it? Because in one of the like like worst weeks in terms of getting our politics together, uh, you know, on the global scale, but yeah. also on the national scale, we have this amazing return to humanity working together to transcend uh, our earthly you know, limits, yeah. and that yeah. is, is so, you know, magical on, on a certain level, but, yeah, it's, it's it's strange, because, as you say, 2020, you know, it's been funny, ever since 2016, I've been hearing, like, I've been seeing, I don't know if we just forget, like, the internet has a, such a short-term memory, but since 2016, I constantly see the meme pop up on one social media or the other that says, oh, next year is going to be, like, it's going to all get better, don't worry, and it's been, we've been saying that literally since 2016. And it seems like progressively we had more and more inc- incidents and 2020, as you, as you suggest, is uh, probably... And so to, yeah. to juxtapose that with uh, getting back into space and having astronauts back in, you know, looking at the pale blue dot, being able to see that in, in real time, right? There's something, there's something that reminds us about how... We're all just on this uh, rock together anyway. We're all stuck. Even if we have all the problems, we're all stuck here anyway. There's nothing we're going to do about it. And that dog is going to be thrown into the atmosphere in a couple seconds. <laughs> <laughs> he's our, uh, what's he, our second guest? He's going to the moon. The yeah, the vacuum cleaner, cleaner and him, they're fucking <laughs> going to the moon. I'm getting muscle. The neighbors on. have just got a new dog, and I hear it whimpering and stuff a lot of the time. Really? It seems like it doesn't like living where it is. Oh, my so. goodness. <laughs> It's possible that, um, I mean, I know it's just not purely lockdown riots, you know, everything's kind of compounding and 
Um, yeah. We're all stuck inside, so being outside and riding with our friends and, and strangers is great, you know? It feels like we're at the festival that we weren't allowed to be at this year and stuff, so... You know, it's just a it's a crazy train of a festival where we're being very reckless and uh, marching down the streets, right? And and uh, it it doesn't. I mean, yeah, it, it doesn't seem like you're going to get your way. What what are they really hoping to get out of this? I I'm not sure. Um, is it in response to the event itself, or is it in response to the call of the the judge, like, because this went straight up to the top of the court case priority list, didn't it? Like, yeah, I think so. Normal, normally, it would have had to. The court case would have had would have been um, held months down the track. Yeah. Well, I think it was and, also well. It's, it's not just this, you know. Like as you mentioned, as you kind of alluded to, it's it's a kind of bit of build up of a lot of things. And as you yeah. as you mentioned, like the whole COVID thing, it adds this additional layer to the groups all having masks on and. It's even more eerie than than a usual protest kind of scenario where there is always yeah. the potential for violence, but it's even more exaggerated, I guess, when everyone has a mask on and is somewhat hiding their identity or they've brought, you know, weapons to break windows with. And I don't know if you, you saw this as well, but apparently a lot of, you know, the people causing these acts of uh, violence and crime, you know, destruction of property and business. They're not even from uh, primarily Minneapolis is where this is going on. Apparently 80% of the people that have arrested aren't even from Minneapolis. They're they're foreign to the, the state. So there's also a question of like, are people deliberately coming going there to sow chaos you know like the, it seems as if you know we talked about the buddhist uh, realms in the previous episode and it seems like there is a kind of person who's stuck in a kind of hell realm that just wants the world to burn in a kind of jokerish fashion mm. and it was i can't i can't help but think i saw that movie less than six months ago and now i'm seeing it in screenshots that are not uh, cinematic, right? <laughs> They're on Twitter, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah and, and that's an, a, you know, it is just kind of, uh, I don't want to say alarming, but it's again, it's just another reminder of how fickle a lot of uh, the 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 string by which we hold society together can can really start to, yeah. you know, start to stretch when we get to these very hard cases of injustice and. Yeah, I don't know. It's, we don't obviously have any solutions. We don't have any political, uh, you know, policies to suggest here. But certainly the uh, approach of Dr. King, I think, still rings true to me. And I think in Australia, that's been our biggest strength. Is It's a part of the Aussie identity to some degree to just, um, you know, uh, be a mate, um, have a have a sense of connection. And I think that's also like linked to our history because, you know, this was a tough place to live. You needed people to rely on, you know, spiders everywhere, snakes trying to bite your dick <laughs> off. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's why mateship was formed, right? That's because it. We're, we're men versus all the wild and versus our uh, kind of helpless environments. Well, you need some mates, yeah, don't you? You need mates. That's the thing. Well, you do, you need also just people you can rely on in society. Like, I, I don't know, part of this as well is it's showing how disconnected we are in terms of our identities. Like, nationalism has taken such a big hit, and maybe rightfully so, because we know that it could lead to, you know, blood and soil Nazism. We know that that's a potential. But unfortunately, if you don't have nationalism, 
what is binding us together? Like, what, what, because, like, there is a sense in which we want to say we all have these values and we want to have, you know, we want to, as you said, mateship, right? Like, what is that? Well, it's the idea that we want to look out for each other. We want to, we want to live in a society that's aware that not everyone has it, like, you know, not everyone has it as well as you do. And you want to make sure that, you know, people aren't just suffering needlessly. You want to do your, your part. And, and thankfully in Australia, we don't have homelessness as bad as, as it is in the States too. Like we don't have as much of a, I think, a class distinction between the like very poor and the very rich. We definitely have our very rich coal uh, uh, coveters, but in general, the middle class is quite strong. Uh, at the moment, hopefully that doesn't change in the aftermath of COVID. Uh, but you know, one, once we can start gathering, I guess we'll find out. Once we can sit in a restaurant six feet apart <laughs> from each other uh, in these, it's going to be so weird as well. Just like sitting in a with so much space around you, like it's just going to be very yeah. odd for a while, I suppose. But let me ask you this: What? How long do you think it's going to be until you know? everything just kind of goes back to a normal. Do you think that's going to happen in 2020 mm. or do you think that really requires a vaccine or, or something before we get to mentally back to just living as if we don't think about pathogens every other day, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's a, that's a very interesting question. It's very, you know, pertinent to the situation at the moment. Um, no one really has an answer to that, right? So it's all speculation and... Um, I, I feel like we're at a very much a wait-and-see kind of moment where we are hoping for not a second wave to uh, arise. Um, we're really just being tepid and, and cautious and hoping, yeah, just like doing everything that we can to not spread pathogens. And I guess like at the moment, I mean, the, the normal is at the moment, you know, as abnormal as it, as it is at the moment. Uh, it is frowned upon to like be in within the 1.5 meters to like almost not wear a mask and and stuff not so much here i suppose but yeah like um these are the kind of normalities that have sunk into our society at the moment um but hey like in australia i could see normality sinking back in probably towards the end of the year summer yeah. You know, we just have to get over this winter hump, and with the restrictions easing next month, it's kind of this test to see if we can do it. It's it's kind of a reward as, as well, if you look at it that way, that we've done so well so far, that yeah. we're allowed to do a few more things. We don't have to lock up so much. I could, yeah, it's, it's, that is a tough question. I mean, what, what do you think? Like, yeah. Uh... Normality, is that something we're looking at? I think you're right that it won't be normal by the end of 2020. Like, if it is the case that I think we, like, places open up and, uh, you know, we don't see, as you said, like, second waves and, you know, uh, anomalies creeping up that indicate that this is a more dangerous or, or as dangerous as we thought uh, it could be, you know, and uh, there's there's really a lot of speculation about the, the idea that this was made in a lab that is becoming a much more stronger hypothesis than it initially was. And what that means is that when a virus, I mean, this is not, obviously I don't, I'm, you know, paraphrasing from experts that I have listened to. I don't, obviously, 
know this myself, but yeah, so when a virus naturally occurs and makes the jump from, let's say, a bat to a human, it's not going to be efficient yet at attacking the human system. But if it's made in a lab, you would expect it, as soon as it shows up, to be massively contagious and massively effective at, you know, uh, degrading the immune system and... That, so, and so that's what COVID is. So, so again, it's, it's like the, there are many questions still on the table and recklessly kind of just throwing it out there and just saying, let's just get back to it because hospitals are empty and clearly that shows that uh, <laughs> we've we got a handle on it. I think that's misguided. So I, I think you're right. It's not going to be at the end mm. of 2020 unless we discover that this thing is much more benign than initially we thought, right? You know, maybe, yeah. maybe it is the case that the mortality rate is quite low and you're only really in trouble if you are obese or have some under other health problem or over 80. And then there's the question of, well, lots of things can kill you if you're in that group. And of That's course, a fair point. Yeah. Of course, we want to, you know, avoid that. But oh, yeah. death is everywhere Definitely. at all times. And it's like it's it, there is a real balance, as you as you alluded to, between the deaths of economic uh destruction you know if someone doesn't have a job they can't provide for themselves they potentially commit suicide but you know i'll give you this as a potential uh, palate cleanser before we go on to the the bats here apparently in japan apparently uh during their lockdown suicides dropped massively because they were all you know at home just enjoying life you know for you know they they, they didn't have the pressure of having to go like you were physically forced to not do that and apparently suicide so interesting. dropped massively, yeah. which is very fascinating. I think it, I think that shows us how, how much of how, uh, you know, the nine to five grind that is just considered the norm uh, in our in our culture is, is, is just ridiculous on some level, especially if that extends to now staying after five or staying on weekends and doing work, you know, when you're not even at the office. That is just like so absurd. And it's like human beings have other things to do. And if you just, if you just put them in this box and just, make them push buttons for seven hours seven days a week i just don't think that's that's healthy it's just not gonna no definitely not and especially when it obscures your perception where you can't even see a way out and yeah. the only way out is death is death by suicide so yeah that's just really sad terrible uh yeah wow like that that says so much that actually does says, say so much and like you said palate cleanser for them too it's it's <laughs> yeah. like it's it's honestly a a shift in perspective that yeah, yeah. has allowed them to view the beauty in life. Get a holiday. Yeah. Get a wow. break. All right. Well, speaking of breaks. Welcome back to Mate Dates. In this segment of the show, we're talking about what is it like to be a bat, which is, of course, the title of 
uh, a very famous essay in philosophy. It's kind of the, you know, in the uh, curriculum for every philosophy of mind course, as far as I can see. And, and there's a reason why, because Nagel has a way of expressing the intuition that consciousness has something more to it than simply neurochemistry or simply functional analysis of behavioral states. He really does think that consciousness, the most essential feature of it, relates to this feeling of being a subject. So, you know, it seems as if the most essential part of being conscious is that it feels like something. It feels like I, as a human being, as this particular organism called J, there is something it is like to feel that. And likewise, he uses the example of a bat to kind of demonstrate that though a bat is similar to us in certain ways, it feels pain, it might feel fear, it might feel joy even to some degree, it has a different component to their mental life which relates to sonar, the way they navigate, they use frequencies and bounce them off the walls of caves and use frequencies at different volumes to navigate because they're very blind, they can't see very well. And, and Nagel uses this example simply to highlight that though we can imagine what it might be like to be a human who is kind of behaving like a bat, we can never really know what it is like for the bat to be a bat in the sense that human beings could never really capture that kind of sonar navigation. You know, we have other physical features and sensations that we use, such as vision or touch, that are more human-esque in their uh, qualia. And qualia, I'll just put this term out here before uh, I throw it to you. Qualia is just the idea that we have senses and there is an element to the senses that is just the raw data. So when I taste chocolate, it's the taste of chocolate that is the essential element there. It's the fact that it's sweet. I mean, I can say all these words, but really I'm, mm. not, I'm not capturing what it means to taste chocolate because what it means to taste chocolate is to taste chocolate. It's like you can put whatever word you want, but the second you try to put language to it or a concept, you kind of lose it. So qualia is our best kind of shorthand for alluding to the sense data that we experience. So when I see the color red, the quail of red is the redness of red. It's the fact that I see a, a kind of shade that isn't green, it's red. So I can call it red, but there's no real way of me knowing that it's red. I don't know if your red is the same as my red. And that's another interesting feature here. But let me just give it to you uh, first here. What did you make of uh, this essay? Because I think, this was this the first time you, you read this one? Uh, first heard it in the book by Annika Harris um, named Conscious, Conscious, and it was just, uh, the subtitle was like a brief, a brief look into the fundamental mystery of the of consciousness or and uh, in that yeah it was brought up because yeah we only really know our own right and like we only really have a connection to ourself rather than to anything else and we can only really point finger at other things that we can we that appear conscious right and we base that off our own experience to then realize that other things are conscious. Right. So it's this kind of innate deduction that we make to figure out what we should interact with and what we can expect a response from. But yeah, on, on Qualia, is it, is it 
just to make sure I've got my understanding correct, is it basically what you said on top of the fact that it's an experience as well? So if you're tasting chocolate, it's like the feel of the 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 smell of the chocolate as it as it goes up into your nose as well. Like as you're eating it, you know how you breathe the chocolate in when you eat it. It's the the feeling that it invokes when you eat it as well. And like, am I right in saying all that? Yeah. So that I think there'd be like the smell quail, the taste quail, the visual quail of the brownness of chocolate or whiteness, whatever you know, whatever you've got. Uh, right. I'm a white <laughs> whatever, whatever. I'm a white chocolate man pick. myself, but. But uh, yeah, I think you're right in that. Yeah, exactly right. It's it's the feeling that we have. So when I see a traffic light, you know, we we all see green, yellow, red. But in the case of the quail that we're experiencing, or, or rather, in in the in the sense that we're experiencing the redness of red or the greenness of green, there's no real way. This is a general problem of other minds, but there's no real way to know that your red is the same as my red, and so. When you're, what you're calling red could very well be green and what I'm calling green could very well be red. There's just no way of correlating right. that because the quail that we're experiencing, as you alluded to, is uniquely subjective. It's, it's something that only we have this first person access to. And this intuition goes back you know, to Descartes in, in his initial kind of skepticism about only having first person access to his mind you know he thinks therefore he exists right so it's, it kind of alludes yeah. back to this kind of general uh, primal position on consciousness that what we care about is the fact that we're experiencing it and so the reason why this essay is, is very powerful in provoking a lot of intuitions but I'll, I'll be fair here a lot of people have the opposite intuition and think that like you know Nagel's kind of talking jargon here um, and 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 that's why the essay is very popular too. It gave the, the you know what was considered the woo woo kind of idealism uh, was kind of you know not very appreciated by the analytical philosophy, which kind of ruled a lot of the post World War Two era. Um, it's only recently in the kind of uh, this this last you know few decades that we're starting to more genuinely approach the problem of the mental with much more you know consideration. Uh, because I think Nagel has, has done a lot of work in allowing us to understand that what we care about is the subjective part. So he says here, quote, But fundamentally, an organism has conscious mental states if and only if there is something it is like to be that organism, something it is like for the organism. And then he says, we may call this the subjective character of experience. It is not mm -hmm. analyzable in terms of any explanatory system of functional states, uh, and then he goes on to also say it is not analyzable in terms of the causal role of experiences. So we could say um, something like a something like saying a, an identity neural reduction. So you would say like uh, all we are are just neurons firing. Well, you could say that, but that leaves out a massive component of the human experience, don't you think? Right. The qualia is not taken into consideration there. Right. Yes. So let me ask you this. So re reading mm. this essay, what was the kind of most uh, obvious thing that stood out to you in terms of what Nagel's sort of arguing here? Did, like the example of a bat, how did that, did that ring true for you? The idea that, you know, you can't really yeah. get there. And you could, you could apply that to dolphins, you could apply that to elephants, you know. Clearly they're conscious. And it seems like if you just take the scale down to like a tree, well, maybe there's nothing it's like to be a tree. But what about an ant? What about a fly? You know, a fly has about 100,000 neurons. It seems like at that point, 
maybe there's something it is. So it's, it seems like it's very hard to to see where it arises. But once we start talking about dogs and elephants and, and primates, for that matter, it seems kind of absurd to say that they wouldn't be conscious at that point, considering the yeah. complexity of the behavior, right? Right, yeah. I mean, we, we kind of base our uh, deduction of and our conclusion of something's consciousness by the way it reacts to certain mm. stimulus, right? Like if the animals walk around and if they're hungry, they will go seek food and they, they will whimper and, and kind of cower when you threaten them with the hand of force and, and an iron fist, right? So like everything is having an effect on something. It's cause and effect right there. And like, but yeah, so with a bat, it's, it's interesting because we're all in this world together. We, I mean, we know that due to Descartes going, I think, therefore I am, and I think this is in the same world as me, so it must be true. It, it's very interesting with the bat example because, yeah, like we're navigating through this world through our five senses and our sixth, which some people uh, argue, and but we know that a bat is completely blind, right? So, like, how does it navigate? We figured out that it uses echolocation and it doesn't actually see and rely on vision like we do. Like, we rely on vision heavily for, right. yeah. for understanding where we are in the world and, and our relation to other things. Um, it's, it's, just, it's super fascinating to think about because, yeah, like, we, we exactly cannot understand what it is like to be a bat. We can only understand to the extent of our experience. So he says something like, you know, I, I can't understand what it's like to be a bat. I can only understand what it's like for me to be a bat, not yes. for a bat to be a bat. To, to kind so, of project as Thomas Nagel into another costume kind of mental state. Uh, yeah. But, but, like, but the actual experience, the rawness of the subjective experience of what it is like to be a bat is simply not available. And yet we'd be mistaken, or it seems absurd, to think that it wouldn't be conscious, right? Because, because of the, as you said, the behavioral uh, complexity, the fear that they have, the, the, the idea that they experience pain, especially if you, if you think that suffering or pain is sort of like part of the bedrock of conscious experience you know having the sort of dichotomy of pleasure and pain being at the fundamental kind of thing that we're that we're doing and there's there's also something to be said about the idea that even a bat scientist if you can imagine such a thing even if <laughs> even if there was a, a kind of bat in a lab coat that was able to dissect out a bat's brain and you know the bat scientist would have the experience of sonar and would know what it is like to be a bat even if you consider that, the bat scientist looking at the brain of a bat is not able to know if that bat is having the, those experiences. And this just gets to the heart of the neurochemical problem. It's that any attempt to reduce the mental to the material in this way seems as if we're leaving out the experience of qualia. But it seems as if we're left saying that we have some sort of soul or that we're not connected to our brains. And then that seems ridiculous. So Nagel's simply pointing out that we're stuck with this problem. And until we clarify the nature of 
how do we even get close to understanding the subjective character of an experience? We're never going to get any closer to explaining what is essential about consciousness, what we care about consciousness, which is that part of it. You know, we can keep saying things like, oh, no, it's just your brain. Um, I, I want to get your take on this, actually. Let me find the mm. quote just quickly uh, from Nagel. He says, quote, it is difficult to understand what could be meant by the objective character of an experience, apart from the particular point of view from which the subject apprehends it. After all, what would be left of what it is like to be a bat if one removed the viewpoint of the bat? Uh, end quote. So he's essentially saying there, in my view, you know, if I taste chocolate and someone wants to tell me, oh, you know, that you're kind of, you know, imagining that taste. Cho tasting chocolate is just your brain releasing dopamine or it is just your neurofibers, your C fibers firing in this part of the brain. That's why you're feeling the pleasure of chocolate. It seems as if the person who wants to do that, the empirically rationalist, science-minded uh, person that wants to say that is, is really missing the point. And it seems ridiculous to say that it's more objective to describe the taste of chocolate in terms of brain chemistry as opposed to the actual experience of tasting chocolate, which is the whatever it is, right? The, the sweetness on the tongue and, you know, whatever aftermath it has in the tummy, you know, sugar causing all like that. That's part of the experience, too. Right. And you can't capture that all with just language. So what did you what did you think of that? This idea that it doesn't really make sense to say we want a objective understanding of pain or something. It seems kind of a little misunderstood to put it in that way. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly that. Like he says, you know, if you try to make it an objective, you're really moving away from the subjective. So you can't right. explain consciousness by looking at it objectively just by its exclusively, right? So um, you need to incorporate the subjective into this theory and into this reduction and, and you know it says every subjective phenomenon is essentially connected with a single point of view and it seems inevitable that an objective physical theory will abandon that point of view and so you just yeah it's just you have to include the qualia and and to include the qualia you have to be the one to experience it from that single point of view Right, right. And, so, and it seems as if you can't get at that simply by looking at a brain or looking at yeah. you know, that, some sort of biological phenomenon. Though we are totally, you know, Nagel doesn't take it to that extreme. He says, you know, physicalism isn't false in this way. It just has this kind of gap. So it's not to say that, you know, we that brains aren't responsible for consciousness in some way. It would seem ridiculous to go to that extreme. But it seems as if we are left with this general problem. And it's interesting you, you just alluded to this here. Let me bring in uh, Jay Guan Kim in his Philosophy of Mind uh, book. He says, quote, kind of relating to what you just said, a reduction of consciousness to brain states would turn essentially subjective states into states without subjectivity. That is, conscious states have been turned into states that are not conscious. But that is absurd. And hence, there can be no consciousness to brain reduction. This line of argument invites many questions, but it is an intelligible and not obviously implausible line of thought, end quote. And so you're exactly right in saying that when you try to get at the objective feeling of redness, right, the quail of red, let's, let's understand that objectively. Mm. When the scientist wants to say that, they're actually missing the point and... You know, I actually heard Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of make this point in an interview. You know, 
he got asked i think it was russell brands under the skin he asked him you know what do you th- what do you make of consciousness the the hard problem there or the mystery of consciousness and you know he had the kind of typical well you know it's a mystery but science will get at it eventually but nagel's critique is actually more dramatic he's saying that science and empirical data simply don't get at what we care about which is the essential subjective character and this is you know either an intuition that you feel or it's one that you think is kind of missing the point and maybe you think that you know you're just you're just kind of misusing language here and let me just bring this in as well the idea that he also makes the point nagel at the start where you know when we for instance water right when we discover water we look at it and we call it something water we we give it a name and then we discover through getting out of our own subjective viewpoint we discover that uh water comprise is comprised of h2o right and so in that way getting mm. getting closer to the more third person point of view on that substance is a more accurate version of it and so likewise you could say uh lightning has an objective character this is nagel here that is not exhausted by its visual appearance, right? And so in this way, uh, you could say that lightning, once you discover what it is fundamentally, you are getting closer to a genuine understanding of what it is. But this doesn't hold for consciousness simply because stepping closer towards the third person, more kind of brain-based neurochemical point of view gets you out of the subjective you're actually moving away from the subjective and and like the point that i think you made before it doesn't really capture that like it doesn't really make sense because how can it how can you say that my objective experience of say red or pain isn't what i'm feeling it, it seems like it's it seems like when i'm in pain and you just tell me oh no it's just your c fibers firing it's just your brain doing this i want to say no i'm in pain that's why that's what it feels that's what pain (laughs) is on some level it's that i'm feeling pain um and so i don't know what do you make of that i I just said a lot there uh do you have any view on that because i feel like that's the most interesting point that uh emerges here it it's really fascinating the fact that you know you can look at it under a telescope and say these this is all happening but for the subjective, you, yeah, it, it's, it's doing it an unjust service because you're missing out on everything else that's happening. So it's not, it's not a bad thing, right? Because, like you said, we're, we're able to see it more accurately when it's objective and we can see the chemical reaction. And it's, it's much more accurate from an objective point of view. And that shouldn't be understated. That is actually very valuable and beneficial, right? Like, like it, because a lot of the time in the subjective, we can really propel ourselves into these negative thoughts. Yeah. And, like, in order to become more objective can actually bring us out of that and to shift our subjective mindset to something more objective um, to then take away the power of the negativity. What do you so, think so in the sense that like maybe maybe you feel stress uh, and maybe you feel like like anxiety and then understanding that as a more neurochemical process alleviates the 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 like felt sense that it's really bad is that kind of what you're you're getting at that yeah okay yeah the, the, the power of that anxiety has been looked at and, and a light has been shone upon it to then 
realize like for what it for what it really is. It's just a, a neurochemical reaction that we don't really have. But but that's the point Nagel's not uh, kind of arguing against, isn't he? Because he's saying that you know what makes anxiety something like that. Like what makes it feel like anxiety like if i if i suffer from some sort of generalized anxiety disorder and you tell me oh no it's just your brain doing this you know like i'm gonna feel like no i i really feel this like i'm not i'm not like it's gonna feel like i'm not making this up and sure you could say well you know if you want to fix that you want to try out these various psychological tricks you know maybe do see cognitive behavioral therapy you know try out things and and see if you can fix it but on the question of uh what is anxiety if you say, well, it's just brains doing this, it seems like Nagel's trying to say no, it, that the essential part of anxiety, of any phenomenal experience, the, the essential part of it is that we feel it. We have a, it feels as if we're coming at it from a kind of vantage and there is an awareness that really doesn't need to be there. Like, for instance, your brain is doing things that you're not conscious of, right? You're breathing, you're doing all sorts of things in your gut and in your stomach that you have no conscious awareness of. So the question is, why are we aware of the things that we're aware of? And in that sense, consciousness is this ever-changing thing, and the nature of what it is depends on its, its contents. And so we could never just reduce that to simply brain chemistry and uh, Nagel also makes this point I wonder what you think about this the idea Mm. of like a Martian right because if we admit that consciousness isn't special to humans right we could see it in other creatures on earth but likewise it seems kind of highly likely that consciousness could emerge in other parts of the cosmos it seems highly likely that you don't need necessarily like a human brain you could have maybe a a, a kind of martian brain in your legs or your feet that with different kind of structures and that would be a kind of consciousness that is different from ours and if you accept that we're left with another general problem that if a martian scientist wanted to understand human consciousness we really couldn't do it. Or likewise, if we wanted to understand a Martian's consciousness, we'd really have a problem. And Nagel points this out by saying, you know, we can, I, like, we can understand each other's sense of subjectivity. You know, if you have a, if I pinch you and you're in pain, there's a sense in which I can relate to that. We're a part of the same species. But Nagel's point is that once we start talking about different species, and particularly species that aren't even earthly, right? They don't even have any chemistry, or they don't they don't even have any biology that's linked to us in a Darwinian sense. Then we're really stepping out of our comfort zone in terms of understanding whether or not a creature is conscious, con- whether or not a creature or a system is conscious. And this problem would apply to AI as well. You know, if mm. a, if an AI system, if there's something it is like to be an artificial intelligence, then you would have to admit that this thing experiences something, but we would never know. We, we would never know. We'd n- we never had the ability to look inside from the hood because it's it's so subjective. And so just before I actually I throw it to you, I'll just mention this point as well. There's the problem of solipsism that Nagel gets criticized here for, you know? Uh, solipsism is the idea that only you exist, right? <laughs> only you're conscious. And he says, you know, there might be a danger of falling into that. But again, he uses the species point of view to say, well, no, we know when other humans are conscious. We can relate to that. We have behavioral connections to that. And we can, we can, we can notice how we, you know, we both wince when we feel pain unless we're, uh, 
into BDSM, I suppose. <laughs> but what do you make of that? The idea that consciousness could be, you know, throughout the cosmos, and even if it was, we wouldn't really be able to know. Even if even if a Martian did come and behaved as if it were, were conscious, we would have no way of looking in into the hood and seeing because we can't even do it for ourselves. We can't even do it to our brains. Yeah, I mean that, that's it, it. Seems like a really big problem, honestly, because and and one that I can't really see us overcoming or solving anytime soon but like yeah like as far, well to to talk on the point of like could be throughout the throughout the cosmos like as far as we know like we didn't choose to be here right so like if we're here who's to say if we're here and having an experience who's to say um nothing else is like yeah it, it would seem arrogant right? like, yeah it's, it'd seem uh, a bit presumptuous <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I, I I get really stuck on this sort of stuff because. Well, okay. Well, well, let's discuss the uh, you know the possible alternatives because you are right. Nagel even says that in a in a quite a uh, a good a good couple lines. He says, without consciousness, the mind body problem would be much less interesting. With consciousness, it seems hopeless. And right. the few solutions to this, you could maybe you know we could talk about panpsychism, right? This is one way of approaching the problem, which is to say, well, there really isn't a dualism going on. It's it, they're all it, on some fundamental level of matter. There is a there is a an element of mental and a, a kind of mentality atom that comes along with matter. But it does seem like if you do the reductio ad absurdum, we're left with saying that atoms have some sort of mental life you know trees must have some mental life then and i don't know how far out do you go with that notion does that does that somewhat uh put the band-aid over nagel's wound to some sense yeah <laughs> like yeah it's just it it does seem like an easy way out in a way um but like if you were to go over that and really mull over that you really you come to the conclusion that and this is what um annika harris says in her book conscious that we're basically a, a really if that's the case and everything is having an experience tables chairs you name it um the things that we take for granted you come to this realization that for humans we have this really rare type of consciousness and you know to feed into buddhism like reincarnation let's say it's real we're reincarnated into these human vessels, into these human bodies that are capable of so much, so much more than a tree is, from what we can see at least. <laughs> but yeah, like, a tree could be having an experience, not able to move, it's rooted into the ground. Doesn't seem like the most fulfilling of, of experiences, but perhaps to a tree it is. Like, yeah, as far as we know, maybe the tree is very satisfied and, and receives pleasure of some sort when it breathes in carbon dioxide and then exhales oxygen. It's, right. it's, that's very possible that it is a very fulfilling conscious experience. But for us, the fact that we're able to contemplate that is on another level, right? That, that's right. very fourth wall breaking there. And the, the fact that we can have this discussion is just, is very valuable because for other conscious entities, it seems that doing what they do is very much second nature. 
So it's very much in their DNA to just do that without question, without any self-doubt, without any anxiety. Because as far as I know, humans are the only creatures on Earth that experience anxiety. Unless, for instance, you have a dog that suffers from some sort of PTSD, some sort of um, trust issues. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. the infliction of humans. Yeah. Right? So it could be that they were mistreated and abused when they were young and in their present moment. When they, when they grow up, they're, they're now tainted and their experience is then filled with self-doubt. And Let's say they're out in the wild, they should just... They, they wouldn't question their, their beliefs. Like, they're, they're... Yeah, right. Like, even if they do experience fear from some sort of predator, they experience the fear. There's, just, there's no question about it. And they don't have the same existential doubt, right? You're right. Yeah, exactly. They don't, they don't have this kind of... Uh, like ability to see the abstract in the same way that uh, that human beings do, or they do, and they can't communicate that in any way. Yeah. Um, that's I mean, the other that, interesting that's another, thing too. Yeah, layer of confusion to it, I suppose. Exactly, um, and so you know, it's interesting because you look at like primates, and you can see so many like almost relatable behaviors. You can see like you know love. You can see tribal uh, group forming and and sort of. Um, maliciously, you know, uh, you know, all the all the human emotions of wanting to uh, destroy the other group, destroy the the other, right? Uh, all those impulses yeah. you could observe in primates, and I don't know. It makes me think, right? Because like the history of this stuff in terms of the philosophy of mind, it really used to be the case that we would, we just weren't that imaginative when it came to at least in the canon uh, about you know the fact that animals are clearly conscious. Like, we had this idea that language was at the fundamental root of consciousness. And that only really mm. works if you think that self-consciousness is all there is to consciousness. Um, but in my view, or at least I think in Nagel's view as well, though language is, uh, you know, uniquely human, it doesn't, you know, fully capture all of our experiences. And it certainly doesn't capture all the experiences that primates have because they don't use English language or any other language to communicate. And so all I'm making, uh, all the, the only point mm. I'm making here is that language is very central to our ideas of consciousness, though they might not really be relevant. Like, it only is relevant in the sense that we're highly social in terms of our uh, the way we communicate. And so it makes sense in terms of our abilities to communicate. It makes sense that I would feel like a self who's able to consciously and strategically pay attention to other voices and other you know people things that are said by other people but you know this problem seems at least yeah my intuition is that this is a very difficult and hard problem to quote Chalmers and I wonder what you think of this like you know getting off Nagel Chalmers has his point about the uh, zombies you know David Chalmers one of our uh, Australian exports one of the few philosophers that we've uh, put out there and he his whole point is that you can imagine a kind of zombie human that, you know, let's say we're having this conversation now, but really you're not conscious. You just know how to react in all the right ways and you're just sort of reflexively doing whatever you're doing. And do you think that's compatible? Do you think that could really happen? You could be living in a world of zombies that behave exactly the same way, but just don't have a kind of awareness 
of the, of what they're doing or of what the contents of their mind are. Is this where, where, where they wouldn't have a self? They don't have a... Their identity is based on what? Well, the z- zombies, yeah, there would be... There would be no consciousness, no awareness. So no awareness of the self, but also no awareness of anything. Just just reflexive behavior. Now, now okay, so you've kind of touched on like... It seems maybe logically incompatible to say that you could have a human being capable of doing all the things a human being is doing with all the complexities of all the you know millions of neurons going on, uh, firing at every, every, every point. It seems maybe logically impossible that you could have that and also not be conscious. So does that, does that yeah. ring true for you? I don't know. Yeah, I, I guess it could, like, I, as, a, as a serious question, as like, is, can it... Do these zombies exist in the world currently? Like, I, yeah, <laughs> possibly. I mean, the nine to five, it brings you home. Again, they, they live among the us. They live among us, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the flat earthers. Yeah, right. I think, yeah, it's it's definitely possible. I think that, but surely, I mean, my, my, my initial gut reaction kind of leads me to believe that you would hit a wall. You'd hit a wall where... Why would you? But you've just answered it, right? But like, why would you want to do anything? Like, why would you want to achieve anything in life? Marry someone, right. get that promotion at the job, um, strive right. to be better. But then I guess you know, yeah, you can just fall back on. But it's just a reflexive. They know how to kind of push. They're just they're just acting and and acting based on what other people are doing. So what? There's like a Maybe, yeah, maybe that's how this world started. It's like it, one conscious being had the drive to self-actualize and then everyone else just saw that and went, that's what I must do. Boop, boop, beep, boop. <laughs> <laughs> right, no, I think, um, yeah, that seems right, right? Like the urges that human beings have, that's what those things are born out of, right? Like the need to yeah. want to be liked, the need to want to you know, accumulate uh, status and wealth. It seems as if you couldn't have a human being that's doing all those things without the conscious urges on the first person's side. I think that could be true too. And and that's one of the, yeah, the kind of flaws in the zombie argument. And it's one of the strengths of Nagel's point that he doesn't have the same problem because he's really contending that, you know, it's so what if other human beings aren't conscious? They probably are because you know, you, you, they're a part of your species and you can very much see a similar reaction. But Nagel's point really is, let me quote him here again, it is impossible to exclude the phenomenological features of experience from a reduction in the same way that one excludes the phenomenal features of an ordinary substance from a physical or chemical reduction of it. And he goes on to say, when we examine their subjective character, it seems that such a result is impossible. The reason that every subjective phenomenon is essentially connected with a single point of view, and it seems inevitable that an objective physical theory will abandon that point of view. So again, when we go towards the physical theory, when we move, when we make a move to say, let's try and understand consciousness, let's look at the brain, let's, let's dive deep and find out what's going on, let's check out all these neurons and see what's going on. Even if we had a complete mapping of the mind in that way, we still couldn't really get to this deeper phenomenal level of qualia and what it is like to be a, a human or a bat or whatever. And maybe this is a, 
you know, what do you think of this? This is one criticism that gets leveled quite a bit. The kind of what it is like definition is maybe too elastic. You know, you can imagine maybe there is something it is like to be a fly, but consciousness, we don't really want to use that term in the same way because clearly human beings are much more, uh, you know, diverse in their conscious experience than a fly. So do you think Nagel's definition is sufficient is it complete is is the what it is likeness does that fully capture it for you or do you think maybe it could be potentially too broad of a analysis maybe yeah i probably fall like lean one way into the latter thinking that there is so much more to it than just what it is like that there's so many things at play that other things like that that's all very like you can you can copy and paste that to per- from person to person. What it's like for one person is not the same as what it's like for another, it, and that's within the species, right? So, right, yeah. Um, and that would be the danger yeah, of solipsism, you know, falling into the kind of, you know, only I am conscious and only I know that. And that's fundamentally kind of true, but it just seems like you'd be doing extra work to say, well, all these other creatures just like me with brains just like mine aren't conscious. You know, it seems like that's a that's a, a an argumentative step that takes more premises into account than simply saying, you know, the kind of simpler approach, which is that, well, they have brains, so they're probably conscious too, you know, they kind of react in the same way when I react, you know, when I get pinched or when I taste chocolate, they seem to enjoy it. But as you point out, the weird cases are when someone so radically changed their phenomenal experiences it like in the case of bdsm that's a good example yeah uh, right 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 so yeah so that's right in in these cases of inverted spectrum where we have different p- different agents of the same species reacting differently to kind of the same neuro events you know so when mm. i pinch when i pinch you you might wince but when you pinch me i get an erection right there's <laughs> There's just, there's just, uh, as you, as you point out, there is a, there is a difference in the what it is likeness, and maybe again that is a potential weakness in Nagel's argument because I don't want to say that our conscious experiences are that different. You know, if we're part of the same species, in general, you'd think we would both be conscious in the same way, or, or for, or for the most part. But maybe it is the case that our, that our conscious experiences are so deeply different and diverse that we could never have a general theory that goes across not only human beings, but across species, right? We could, could never have a general mm. theory about dolphin consciousness or about elephant consciousness or about bat consciousness. And, and I think also like sea creatures like dolphins and whales, these are also great examples because they communicate on frequencies that are not even perceptible to human ears. And across the ocean, they communicate mm. for hundreds of kilometers of distance. And so that's a kind of language, isn't it? Like that's a kind of social consciousness that is within the species that is just, comp- because the frequencies aren't even available to us without the right tools. And even when we detect them, we can't decipher them. We can't, you know, we, we don't know if uh, beep, beep means give me food and whap, whap means like, I don't know, whatever squeaks. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a... Uh... There's a shark on the way or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, that's. Don't you think that's because ex- they hunt together as well? Like that's that's what they're doing. Of course. Like it's a kind of social communication, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, it'd be wrong to say that they're 
that they can't understand each other or yeah like they, they can right like that's what the, that's what's been built up so each one of each agent of those species will be able to understand one another due to that but maybe a conversation where both people are, both people are, or or mammals or sea creatures are on the same level one could be happier or the or sadder than the other right so it's like yeah like whatever is going on and they're both experiencing the same thing one could be either taking it one way or the other and that, that every species out there um, so it's not completely wrong to say what it is like but it is kind of yeah I guess the hang-up is where they they take it how they respond and how it's applied how it's applied yeah maybe yeah yeah how how they are able to respond yeah I don't know it's just from from each species they all it's yeah it's totally fair to say that they're all like one another right and it seems to say that they're not conscious would be a leap it would be a which is which was the position of like many philosophers for a long time you know that, that, that pretty much all animals were just not conscious because right. you, ne- you needed language to be conscious which would suggest that babies aren't conscious right because <laughs> they can't yeah <laughs> and i don't know that that kind of presents uh, an issue of humans where we think that we're above everything and so because we're humans and we can have all these yeah. elaborate and everything yeah we, we can't should be help. able to understand everything we're obviously more superior than a, to a dog so why can't we understand the dog? We should be, you know, yeah, it's like, it's like if, if, if you were to take Maslow's hierarchy of needs to the hierarchy of, of animal intelligence and say that in order for us to be at the top of the pyramid, we need to understand the, the rest of the pyramid, right? And right. so, yeah, it's just, I don't know, it, I, I get really... Uh, no, I think, uh, I think that's a good point because you're right, it's we do kind of do it in a way that makes us feel superior, but we, but even if we're not doing it to feel superior, we just can't help but uh, understand uh, like other systems with our own conscious tools. We can't help but just try to generalize about how they experience with, with our experience. And that's kind of Nagel's point too, is that as a species, we just, we just can't even imagine what it would be like to communicate you know, hundreds of kilometers in ocean through f- frequencies that aren't even detectable by the human ear. It seems as if that, that would not, you know, just, it would just not be even in the realm of, of being able to comprehend that. And, but let's, let's bring it back here. Let's, for our rationally minded, uh, a skeptical audience, uh, Nagel is not saying that this means that we can all uh, start uh, praying to God and chanting for our souls, if that's what you think uh, he's suggesting here. No, he says, quote, it would be a mistake to conclude that physicalism is false, which is the you know hypothesis that consciousness is purely based on the brain. Nothing is proved by the inadequacy of physicalist hypotheses that assume a faulty objective analysis of mind. It would be truer to say that physicalism is a position we cannot understand because we do not at present have any conception of how it might be true. And so he's kind of saying there, I think, you know, it's our best option, right? It's kind of like democracy. It's the worst political system except for every other one, right? It's kind of like that. Physicalism is the worst explanation of consciousness except for all the others. <laughs> because yeah. we don't want to say that 
consciousness is separate from the brain because it just seems like, well, once you injure the brain, it tends to impact consciousness, right? It just seems to be like that connection, you know, consciousness supervenes or, or phenomenal experiences supervene on neurochemical uh, events. And that seems to be the case. And I hope we've, uh, you know, we're wrapping up here. I hope we've just, if you were skeptical of, you know, if you haven't given any thought to this, I'll say it like this. Mm. If you haven't given any thought to the remarkable nature of first-person experience, like the fact that there's anything at all to experience, Nagel's essay, I think, is a nice portal into that kind of thinking where, you know, you know, just take any object in your visual environment. You know, I've got a microphone in front of me and I call it microphone. I have this concept of microphone and I can use this in a third person way. I can say, hey, Braden, I've got this microphone and you know what a microphone is. So you have this idea of a microphone and we can communicate in that way. But if I just look at what it is, it's not anything. Like I could call it, I could call it whatever I want. If I flip it upside down, it becomes like a stool, right? It becomes something else. <laughs> or if I take a book, right? Uh, while you read a book, well, Maybe I'm going to use it as a paperweight. Maybe it's a coaster. Um, there, so this is all just to say my insight that I've had, thanks to Nagel, is that there is a sort of mystery to first-person experience that once you start to realize just how little concepts have to do with the raw data of sensation, of qualia, you know, the redness of red can never be described in terms of language because the second you say red we don't know what we're talking about we don't know if your red's my red you know the second you say um, the world is just whatever the world is just your brain or consciousness is just the machinations of neurochemistry well you've missed the point because it's the fact that you have this first person access and in some ways, as we alluded to before, that is a more objective basis for what you are than this idea that you've been told you have a brain, it does this, and you know, C fibers firing cause pain. Well, no, I'm in pain. It feels like pain. That's the essential element. And until physical theories actually try to explain that and reduce it in a way that makes sense, Nagel believes that we cannot even get off the ground. You know, we're stuck at this very initial stage and mm. so let me put it to you did you uh, do you feel like thinking of philosophy of mind in this way reading nagel's prose and and remarks on the ideas of consciousness does this trigger the the, the kind of mystery for you that, that i'm alluding to here that like it lets you appreciate more the the raw data of what you're going through as opposed to always relying on kind of concepts yeah you're so well spoken, Jay. I gotta say. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Like it makes you kind of look at it more analytically, and makes you kind of question what you would impulsively or just yeah, like just it, um, instinctively get to right. Like you mm. instinctively get to a conclusion that this is either good or bad. Um, or or whatever, like yeah, like red is good, red is bad. Like maybe maybe step take a step back and and question that and think what is that actually ha what is that actually doing to me? Like it's just it's just a color. It's it's innocent. It's not it's not actually doing anything. But this subjective experience that we're having, this this um, effect it's having on us is is just so interesting in itself. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. and and pain itself. Right. Like. If I take a cold shower, for some, they just, they couldn't imagine anything worse. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like, there is a certain level level of resistance, I feel, when I 
hop into the shower when it's you know freezing cold in the morning but once I'm in there and I kind of put that to the side and really embrace that everything changes it, yeah it, a, a negative experience turns into a positive one and and a really positive one at that like yeah it, it goes back to the um, Stephen Pressfield with the resistance like the more resistant you feel to something the more you are sure you should be doing and mm, yeah and the the outcome of that is just, is so liber- liberating and and I think yeah that goes back to Nagel because you, once you realize that things are just doing what they're doing and you're projecting a lot of yourself onto it um, yeah it, it becomes very revealing of what is actually going on and I think it you know it, it allows you to maintain a level of freshness and clarity in your moment-to-moment experience. Yeah, it, it promotes mindfulness to a certain degree as well. Yeah, and it's it's a wonder, isn't it? It's like I totally empathize with the, you're well-spoken yourself, mate. Uh, that, yeah, that's right. It's like it's like a kind of curiosity that you can develop. And like you said with the cold showers, like, you know, I'm sure the first day it's uh it takes a bit more perseverance but by like it's horrifying know, by the fifth sixth day if you're doing it all the time and you you also have an awareness that you're going to do it so the the difference between like chosen pain and uh and pain that's inflicted on you is so different so the fact that you're doing it for a, a specific reason also changes your mental attitude and so the something it is like there is, is definitely different from, you know, someone that's just been thrown into a cold bath by against their will. You know, that that's mm. those are definitely different <laughs> conscious states to be in, uh, for sure. Exactly. But it's it's the same pain that they're feeling, the same sensation. Same sensation, yeah, exactly. And yeah. and it's really just comes down to your state of mind, your your mindset. Your subjectivity, it. right? We can't yeah. help but bring to bear all of our experiences. We can't help but uh, we can't help but experience qualia or phenomena, whatever, from a specific point of view. That's the insight I think Nagel has that is, is just so interesting, and that's why I think he's, his paper is so popular. And I think we've, we've definitely talked about it uh, quite a bit there. So hopefully, uh, if you've never heard of uh, what it is like to be a bat, you now know uh, no more about that because... <laughs> We don't know. <laughs> so uh, we didn't answer that question and probably we didn't answer any others. So another productive episode as usual. And that'll probably that'll probably do it. You got anything else you want to tack on there? Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to the show about nothing where we <laughs> make no progress whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> is the space between the notes, the musical space, the step, the interval.
soul. And if it's real, you're in a soul. You're in a soul. And if it's real. Reawaken to the reality of 